Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about becoming an architect. On today's episode, I am joined by the architect, urban planner, author, and educator, Vishan Chakrabarti. Vishan is the founder of the Practice for Architecture and Urbanism. He's the author of the book, A Country of Cities, A Manifesto for Urban America, and is an associate professor at Columbia in their architecture department. He previously worked at Shop Architects, SOM. He served under the New York Mayor, Michael Bloom, as the director of the Manhattan office of the New York Department of City Planning. And then just a few weeks before we spoke, Vashan was appointed the new dean of UC Berkeley's College of Environmental Design beginning next summer. So headed into this conversation, we obviously had a lot to talk about. This conversation begins with his decision to study engineering and art history and undergrad and follows his curious path into architecture. We also talk about the role of architecture and building in society and culture and the politics around that. We talk about about the influence of teaching on his practice and how he thinks about the relationship between the two. And we also talk about how he's thinking about this new role as Dean and what he wants to bring to UC Berkeley. I really enjoyed this one. Vishan embodies so much of what this podcast is about from mixing theory and practice to teaching to multidisciplinary careers. I think that there's a lot we can learn from here. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism, as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships, so if you like the show and want to help with its ongoing production, I hope that you consider joining. Thank you, as always, for listening. And here is me talking with Vishan Chakrabarti. Something that I'm interested in, something I'm interested in your work is kind of the what we were just talking about before we started recording, this kind of working across mediums, working across disciplines, doing a lot of things at once. For somebody who's worked as an architect, an urban planner, in real estate, academia. And as I was thinking about this conversation, as I was thinking about you, as I was kind of preparing for this, I saw that in undergrad, you studied both art history and engineering. And so I have a sense that this kind of uh, interested in a lot of things, doing a lot of things at once is something that's been there for a long time. Can you can we go back to that time? What were you thinking about engineering and art history? What were you interested in? What kind of career did you sure. imagine for yourself? Well, you know, I actually in high school I wanted to be a professional photographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I wanted to like do war photography and jump out of planes and things like that. Um, that did not quite come to pass. I oh, still do a lot. I still do a lot of photography actually, but. Um, that, we can talk about that later. Then. Well, photography is this kind of thing. It's interesting because it's a, it's there's a very scientific aspect to photography. Yeah. It's about numbers and like back in the days when you develop film and things like time. Like it's, it's yeah, yeah. very very specific scientific aspects to photography that I think are really fascinating. And of course, obviously, it's very subjective. It's an art form. And so, um, yeah. So I think from a young age, I never fit neatly into the categories that education tends to put you in, you know, about arts or sciences, left brain, right brain. And then, you know, I went to engineering school because I, I was a good Indian boy and my parents were like, well, do you want to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer? And I'm like, 
I don't know, you started with engineer, right? I guess yeah. I need to build things. Um, was a terrible engineering student, didn't do well at it at all, uh, was like clearly like in the, long, in the wrong line at the bank. And, um, and what I found is that with every elective I had, I was taking either a studio art class or an art history class. Okay. And the art history classes I really loved, because art history is actually very analytical. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, realized that if I stayed an extra year, I could get a second bachelor's degree, and so, um, I did that, and this was at Cornell, and what was interesting is the school really fought me on it. Both the engineering department and the art history department, even though it was, like, technically possible. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, I, like, even people in art history said to me things like, you know, you're a Cornell engineering student, you can go out and make a lot of money and go to museums at night, like, why, why do this? Right. Which I found, even as a young college student, to be, like, a shocking kind of abnegation of duty to the idea of just exploring things in a right, right? Right, right. And, um, and so I just went ahead and did it anyway, and that fifth year was a great year in terms of just immersing myself in our history. And you know, the funny thing about it is, so I have these four crazy, expensive, took a long time to get degrees, and in some ways our history, architecture obviously is like, there's an instrumentality to it, and so you know you're going to be a practicing architect and study architecture. But in some ways, I found the art history to be the most useful. And people like in the world we live in, that yeah. sounds like that sounds crazeball. Yeah, right? yeah, that sounds yeah, yeah. nutty. Like how could that be the useful thing? And yet, you think about what we all do in the design professions all the time. Like we have, especially the kind of practice we have where we work with lots of stakeholders, most of the people with whom we work aren't architects, aren't trained in design. And so we have this constant uh, uh, need to use words to uh, talk about visual ideas, right? right? right. Through writing or through speech, we are constantly like explaining really visual things in uh, these uh, in these verbal ways and that's what art history is yeah, art history yeah, yeah, you know yeah. they, so they, they they throw two slides in front of you and they say you know write a 20 minute comparison between right. these two paintings right. and it just forces you to do that and forces you to be analytical about something that's subjective mm-hmm. and so to me that's something that's really really stayed with me did you have an idea of what your career could be when you were studying art history, or when did, maybe a better way to ask the question is, when did you realize the value of that study? Was that later in? So, you know, it, it's interesting, the stories we tell ourselves. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, um, when I think about it retrospectively, there was no strategic game plan right. at all. Like, you know, people have subsequently looked at my resume and said, oh, Art history, engineering, what a perfect setup for architecture, right? <laughs> there was no such strategery going okay. on, right? Okay. But what's funny is that I go back, I used to keep um, pretty copious journals. Mm. Uh, and when I go back and look, like I have journals from freshman, sophomore year in college where it's really clear that I want to be an architect. Um, and, um, you know, Part of it was like that was culturally a little difficult. It was a little outside of the engineer, lawyer, doctor box. Um, 
And also, I just think there's this crazy pressure on a 17, 18-year-old to know. I mean, I have a 17-year-old right now, and um, and trying really encouraging him towards liberal arts because it's just how one knows themselves at that age is a really tough thing. And um, so the answer is sort of in between. I think I was thinking somehow that by doing this more multivalent thing, it would get me on the path that I wanted to go on. But it, it also, there was no agenda in doing that dual degree. Like I wasn't, right, right. you know, I wanted to learn art history for the sake of learning art history. Yeah. Which, you know, in the world we live in, I'm a little worried about it educationally today. You know, we're forcing kids towards STEM education and all of this other stuff. And STEM is great, but you know, you know, like the, the reason there's a humanities program that's very strong at a place like MIT is because the person who donated a lot of the money for the humanities program worked on the Manhattan Project and realized that without the humanities, the technologists right. were going to end the species, right. right? So, you know, just understanding things for the sake of understanding them is Incredibly yeah, important, yeah, yeah. not because of some later end goal. Yeah, you. I mean, you've in that answer, you set up basically all the other questions that I have for for this conversation. So I want to just follow this thread for a second. So you you mentioned that architecture was a little bit outside of um, kind of this life that you saw for yourself, um, but in retrospect, it seems like it's you were set up for architecture. You kind of realized that you wanted to be an architect maybe before you knew what architecture was. Where did that come in? How did you realize? Or where did this idea of architecture as a thing you could do? So again, back to the stories we tell ourselves. I think it was something that was deep inside me for a long, long time, uh, to the point where I had become resistant to it. Um, you know, so I studied engineering art history. I then I, I worked first at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, then at SOM. I was working as an urban planner at SOM, so I was working with 500 architects. Um, and uh, then in the early 90s, the recession hits, a bunch of us escape to graduate school. Um, I go into a city planning degree, which is something that totally made sense to me, it made sense yeah. to that kind of more analytical side of my brain. And that by the end of the city planning degree, and again, I'm surrounding myself in architects, I'm taking all these elective courses in architecture, all my friends are architects, and I'm, you know, but I'm still sort of resistant and actually. One of the partners at SOM spent about an hour with me on the phone saying, you know, you've got to go do this, mm -hmm. you know, because of who you are and what you want to pursue. And so I finally bit the bullet, went and visited probably like 20 schools. Berkeley was the only school I applied to. Okay. I go, I, I apply to Berkeley, I get in, I, uh, I showed up a week before classes started, still extraordinarily ambivalent about whether I wanted to do this. All of my cohort had been there for two months, like, you know, the housing market out there is insane. I was, like, sleeping at the YMCA on plastic sheets. Like, I had, because I just had this thing about, was architecture relevant enough? Right? Like, I mean, and, you know, I think this goes, you, you were talking earlier about, like, the sort of questions you pursued as graphic designer. I mean, like, you know, I could convince myself of the relevance of city planning. And back then, you know, people were just starting to connect 
ideas like climate change and cities and things like that. So you could absolutely convince yourself that there was a societal impact, there was a meaning to studying city planning. Um, architecture, you have to remember, we're talking about the early 90s now. Right, we're, 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 you know, the, the world's entering this peace dividend, right, which right, is right, a right. term no one uses anymore. But like, you know, the Cold War had ended, the wall had fallen, and there was this irrational exuberance about architecture. Yeah. There was this idea that, you know, it was about more is more, that you could build these, you know, extraordinary uh, things that were not tied to budget or right. actually like sort of any human need that really saw architecture as kind of sculpture. Yeah. And, you know, so I had a real ambivalence about That's that so idea, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, and so, whereas I was compelled to study it, I was still very, very concerned about, like, was I going to be able to have the impact that I wanted to have and be relevant to the problems of the world through this discipline? And which is part of why I picked Berkeley, because right. Berkeley was clearly the place that you know, since its outset in 1959 is the College of Environmental Design, right. was about thinking about these fields in a yeah, different yeah, yeah. way. And so, um, you know, went into it half-heartedly. Within two weeks of studio, never left the place, never <laughs> stopped drawing, yeah. never just, just like, realized that this is just who I was supposed to be in the world. But, you know... So it's a very nonlinear. Yeah. Like a lot of people study architecture undergrad, and then they also layer in city planning or right. other things as they like as they grow in their. So this is like it's the opposite of what yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. does. Yeah. Right. And so the last thing I just say about this is what a part of why I'm so still interested in teaching and being around young people in my practice, being around young people in school is um, I actually intellectually feel much, much more aligned to this generation than my generation in okay. terms of the way people think today, right? So in other words, like my crazy nonlinear path, I think is something yeah. just much, much more acceptable and much yeah, yeah. more sort of real in the millennial world than it was in my Gen X world, right? right? right. Um, and so, you know, I think it's why I stay yeah, in yeah, education, yeah. actually. I mean, th this, this may or may not be related, but something I was interested in talking to you about is kind of the relationship between design and politics. And I feel like there's a, I mean, you worked in government for a while, and I feel like there's a definite political bend to your work, especially in your book. I think there's a certain kind of a, almost call to action for designers, whether that's architects or, mm -hmm. or urban planners, to deal with these issues. And so it's interesting to hear you say that you thought architecture uh, might not be relevant or might not be able to solve these problems and that you kind of had to, had to get there. How did you kind of realize that these skills you had, that being an architect, being an urban planner, could affect things on a kind of political level like Well, that. as soon as you start designing, you realize all architecture is political. Where you <laughs> place a door yeah. is yeah. a political act. Right, um, you know, we've seen in this city this thing about the poor door, right? Like, you know, like there, there, there is uh, every piece of architecture, whether it tends to be politically impactful or not, is politically right. impactful. Right. It makes right. a statement. You know, 
can look out the window and see any number of luxury condos out there. Those are political buildings. They yeah. don't make, they right. don't mean to be political buildings, right. but they are, right? And so, you know, so it as soon as you start designing, you realize that, you know, in the instrumentality of designing, you are doing political things. That's a baseline condition. Yeah. But then, again, you know, what I find, like, really sort of fortuitous, I feel very lucky uh, about the fact that um, by the mid-90s, by the time I get out of grad school, I'm really in the architecture world still a square peg in a round hole, right? right? In the sense that, you know, I think the year I graduated and the cover of Architectural Record, uh, there, was, uh, there was a photograph of Bilbao mirrored with a photograph of the Getty Center. Yeah. And it's extraordinarily exuberant stuff yeah. that I felt very little connection to right. in terms of what its role was in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, what's and then we hit the new millennium, 9-11, Katrina, mm -hmm. the Great Recession, college students living on their parents' couches, the parents lucky to have a house. Right. Right. And Everything about that changes, right? And I still think, I, I find it fascinating to still see people in my field pursuing the sort of Frank Gehry architecture yeah, model yeah, from yeah. the 90s and believing that that's somehow relevant, right? Right, Like that, that, that that's something that isn't so extraordinary last, extraordinarily last century yeah, 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 and yeah. not even seeing it, not having enough introspection to understand how retrograde that is as yeah. an idea. Yeah. Um, so to me, what's interesting, so like Tatiana Bilbao is a good friend of mine, or uh, when, when the Pritzker was given to Aravena, mm. there is a tectonic shift that's happened in the design world around these issues that yeah. people are still catching up to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and something like Tatiana and I talked about a lot is uh, the resurgence of the last point at which architecture was asked to be socially relevant which is after World War II, mm. Team 10, yeah. structuralists, all of that stuff, uh, which is extraordinarily powerful. It's the schools, like MIT and Berkeley were the yeah, kind yeah. of, yeah. Um, uh, 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 the, the, the last battleground <laughs> for, yeah, yeah, yeah. for structuralism and, then, and refused to sort of fall to postmodernism, you know, which is what put both of those schools in the in the uh, firmament of the design schools, sort of push them back a yeah. little bit, but are now propelling them forward, um, because all of those things that those schools have been talking about historically. Again, I go back to Berkeley and mm -hmm. William Worcester, Catherine Bauer, finding you know 1959, yeah, talking yeah. about a college of environmental design, talking about sustainability, talking about interdisciplinary yeah. uh, schooling between architecture, city planning, and landscape architecture. No one else was talking about that stuff in 1950, right, right? Right. You know, and you know, no one was talking about that in most of the East Coast schools, maybe with the exception of MIT. Yeah. In 1999. Right. 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 Now it's all they talk about. Right. Right. And so, what I think has happened is that when we entered this new millennium, there was this series of shocks, these kind of wake-up calls that like woke architecture from its fever dream, yeah. right? And brought us back to some of the same realities we started confronting in the 50s right, and right, 60s right. before this extraordinary diversion happens called, called yeah, postmodernism. Yeah. 
So now I feel much more a part of the zeitgeist than I did graduating as a young architect in the 90s. This is so interesting to me. I always, as a graphic designer, I always look to to architecture as a, uh, with a sense of jealousy, to be honest, of of, uh, the, the, is this relevant that you're talking about? I feel that with graphic design, it's like, oh, architecture seems much more relevant. That actually is kind of, doing these things that you're talking about. And I also think that graphic design is, you know, maybe five, ten years behind architecture in regards to movements and thinking. And so I think just in the last five years, um, this sense that graphic design is political uh, is starting to kind of gain some uh, Graphic design, I mean, the 20th century is filled with political, right. like the politics of graphic design, right? right? Like, I mean, but I feel like, I feel like that kind of architect model that you were talking about at the end of, of the 90s is we're ending that in graphic design now, that there are these kind of celebrity designers and they have a style and uh, when I look at my design students, some of them still kind of look at that model. It's like, oh, I gotta have a style. I have to kind of be this auteur in some way. Do you have that with architecture students? Do, are they still, do you still have students who are kind of interested in like, I want to be a star architect, you know well, Again, you gotta step back historically a second. I'm sorry to give you long answers to questions. No, no, like, I love this. But to me, the real genius of Gary is that he called social media before social media existed. And what I mean by that is he understood, I think, before most of the architectural profession that images and how images got transmitted around the world right. were going to be more important than actual experience, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, you know, it wasn't actually until Bilbao, the, all the buildings pre-Bilbao, you don't experience right. any of the spaces of those curvilinear shells. They're right. literally a decorated shed. It's a box with these big wavy things on them, right? It's only sort of post-Bilbao that you start to see a kind of breakthrough in that. I'm putting his first house project aside and some of the early work aside. Students still, to answer your question, students still feel, fall uh, very much like into that trap of what happens with social media. So, you know, I remember a GSAP a few years ago where like, every portfolio looked like Sana, right? Mm, yeah. Again, yeah, yeah. except for a couple of exceptions, there was just this kind of, like, Sedgemo's queen, and, like, there was just this kind of way in which it permeated the profession. Now, so, people who would argue for that, who would advocate for that, say, will say, you know, um, movements are important. Yeah. Right? That there's um, a language uh, kind of sense of uh, experimentation that's getting sort of carried through from masters to students and it's important for them to play those things out. And, you know, I don't want to be too uh, uh, too dogmatic about saying that that's problematic. I think that there's, there, there's some validity to that. I just, the problem is when it gets taken too far, and again, when it gets taken too far, not because someone truly is trying to explore and understand the ideas, right? right? So right. for instance, right. you know, to understand how sauna achieves the lightness of their building, you really have to understand the detailing of the 
instruction. Right. It's not just about image making. Right. Exactly. right? Yeah. And so if a student really wants to pursue that and understand that, yeah. I'm all for it. My, my larger problem, though, becomes when it's just literally right. what postmodernism exactly. is, yeah. post is, which is just the image making. And so, um, and that has to do with students thinking that that is some sort of glide path to success. And of course, there are plenty of people in the industry that will feed off of that. There are well-known people in the industry that will pay people very little to basically work at a rendering farm, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. And who, like, who, if they work in that office for two or three years, will have learned nothing about how a building is put together, right? right? Will right. we'll really right. have learned nothing about the craft of architecture. What they will have learned is, you know, how to do a better job in V-Ray and Entourage. And, right, right, and, right. Like, that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, no, I know what you mean. So, so that's really the problem with that line of thought, and yeah. it's, it's, hard to get some students, not all, but some students out of that yeah, yeah, yeah. mentality. Yeah. I want I want to use that to kind of go back to the beginning of this conversation, talking about kind of working across different mediums and different industries. Someone like yourself who's kind of straddling practice and academia at the same time. I, I want to understand how these kind of different activities that, that you do fit together, both here in the studio, as as a teacher, and then you know we can talk about your new job also as a writer and as a kind of public person who's talking about these ideas. How does all of this talk to each other, or, well, or how do they? Influence you know, each it goes other? back to your first question about those origins of like the artistry engineering thing. You know, what I I don't people are I think confused by this often. Like, so for instance, we'll get. Are you an architecture firm or an urban planning firm? And I, to which I say yes, yeah, right? right, right. Um, because I don't understand the distinction really in yeah. terms of who we are and what yeah. we do, yeah. right? Which is not, I mean, urban planning is a separate allied discipline to architecture, right? As is landscape architecture. Mm -hmm. they, they each have their own disciplinary centers yeah. and they are allied to one another, right? And so, you know, it is important to just say, you know, it's not just one big blurry mass, you know, like I, I, I'm not trained in landscape architecture, I can't do landscape architecture, I don't pretend to, right? So I'm not saying it's just some pea soup out there. But, you know, with us, architecture and urbanism, we work along this continuum of scales. And so, um, like we just won this new job that I'm thrilled to death about, uh, and I can't reveal too much about it, but it's in Latin America, and it's a big public market, and it's the heart of a major developing city, and it's a lot about the informal economy, mm -hmm. and helping like local people who like, like basically have like push carts and market stalls, and things like that. Um, but there's a there's a larger, grander sort of architectural ambition associated with it as well. It's a very kind of important spot in the city, and so we. You know, like one of the things I love is our client has on staff an anthropologist, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Who is out there every day, and she's talking to like the local vendors, trying to understand their needs, trying to understand, you know, yeah. like there's a lot of informal economy stuff is hard, right? Like if people show up on a Monday but they don't on a Tuesday, but the customer wants to see the same thing on a Monday or two, like how do you how do you balance all these things? And so. 
to me, every tool we have in the toolkit, every blade in the Swiss Army knife mm -hmm. is equally important, right. equally valid, which is what I ask of all of my people out there in the studio. Yeah. Right? And so there's a great specificity to our name as practice for our contemporary right. urbanism. Right. And the word practice is front and center because I love the word practice because practice implies a bunch of things. It implies an iterative process, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It implies an asymptote. It's not perfect. You are practicing at something the way one studies an instrument, right? right? right. You have to go at it and at it and at it and it takes years, you know? The sort of that whole Malcolm Gladwell, it's not just about the born genius, the per everyone's yeah, yeah. like had 10,000 hours of practice, yeah. right? Um, I'm very interested, we'll talk about Berkeley in a second, but I'm very interested in this in the educational frame because I find a lot of students who are very worried that practitioners are just um, kind of vehicles for capitalism and right. vehicles for the current right. system, therefore eschew practice and say, well, I'm going to go do something else with my architecture or my city mm. planning degree because I don't want to be part of the right. system. Right. And I understand, I understand the criticism, but what we're trying to do here, for instance, is something that tries to thread that needle, right? right that right. says, you know, and sure, like we're part of a capitalist system. I think it's really hard to work in the United States and not be, but we're also trying to push against that system, question that system, change some direct dynamics within that system, and also very clearly, like what's on our website just not do a bunch of things that we don't think right, one should right, do, right. whether we're in the capitalist right. system or not. So, to me, it is about that continuum of scales. So, if we're working on the domino project and we're thinking about the sugar refinery, we are thinking about every single door, the whole porosity of the city around it. If we're thinking about the Sunnyside Yard master plan mm -hmm. at 185 acres, we're thinking about all the architectural implications of what right. does it mean to build on a rail platform. Right. That's a physical right, thing. Right, it, has, right. it, it has a physicality that's incredibly important. You can't just draw little pastel boxes from 30,000 feet in the air and imagine <laughs> that somehow that's going to make sense with what's happening in section in terms of that rail yard. All of that takes practice. Like right. it takes, and, right. and this, my big sort of challenge to this generation that I do feel this kinship with is how can you deal with your own impatience? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. um, like, I get, like, again, I just feel like this extraordinary empathy with, you know, feeling like a, this generation kind of made its way out of university and what did they see they saw a shit show right they saw right. the generations before them completely fuck up the world in like just about every way you can think about i mean from you know again from climate change to social inequity to the way in which we deal with technology to trump to brexit and you know so you look around and all of that and you say everything has to change yeah, yeah. and it needs to change tomorrow right right like right. this is this is and like if you think the millennial, I mean, I have two Gen Z kids. There, that's like you guys are old to them, right? Right. You know, and 
And that, I think, that mentality of like, we're hugely impatient, we've got a fire in our belly, we want to change everything tomorrow, which I really respect, yeah. right, at one level. How does that reconcile itself with the idea of practice? Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, especially architecture. I mean, architecture, most of the most well-known architects are still doing some of their most important work in their 80s. Right. Right. Right? I mean, I'm in my mid-50s. I'm still truly understanding how to put a building together. Yeah. It takes decades. So how does that impatience, right, work with this idea of practice? And I don't have an easy answer to that question. Yeah. But part of my interest about Berkeley and, and, and deanship is how do you take all of these students who just, I know the social passion of that school and mm -hmm. like what people want to achieve. And there's also, you know, we always talk about both at POW and at CD, and I think this is where there's this real uh, kismet between the practice and, you know, the College of Environmental Design, is um, this idea of these twin pillars of design excellence um, and social impact. Mm. The hard part is the way time is a bridge between those two things. Right. You know, because we want the social impact now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And design excellence takes time. Right. Like it, right, right. 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 And yeah. and, and that, that to me, and in fact, you can say you're jealous as a graphic designer, but in some ways, I can throw that back at you because. You know, right, the speed of, of design. I know exactly where you're going. What I find just incredibly hard, I mean, architecture, you know, I, I have architecture students who've gone into designing apps, mm -hmm. uh, who do go into things like, uh, they study graphic design as well. They, they do these things where, the, where the, the fruits of your labor, you know, yeah. are matters yeah. of months, sometimes right. matters of minutes, right. versus matters of years and decades. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this, to me, is like the fundamental challenge that, our discipline faces yeah. right now. Can, so let's talk about the, the new job. So just in the last month or so, you it was announced that, that you're going to uh, start in next year. Be, in next July, yes. Next July, the Dean of the Environmental Design College of College Environmental, of Environmental Design. Design at UC Berkeley. Yes. So I have a couple questions around that that are directly related to what you're just talking about. The first one is going to be a very base question that you've probably had to answer a, a lot. But can you talk about what it means to be a Dean in that department, what, what, how do you kind of see your job? What are your goals going in, into the, the well, position? You know, it's interesting because this was not something that, um, at least at the beginning, I was actively pursuing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, POW is going well. I've been teaching at Columbia for 10 years. I have a lot of uh, respect and a longstanding relationship with Columbia. I'm a lifelong New Yorker in a certain mm -hmm. way. Yeah. So, this was really out of left field in a certain way. But it made sense, not just to me, but to my family and to my, uh, my team here at POW in a few different fundamental ways. Um, College of Environmental Design, again, its, it's, it's roots are in things that directly mirror what our practice is about. Um, and to me, the, the uh, most successful examples of practitioner deans is when there's this kind of reciprocity yeah, yeah, yeah. between what the school represents. So when Bernard was the dean of GSAP, mm -hmm. the paperless studio, 
all of the things that Bernard was trying to do out in the world, there's this reciprocal yeah. nature. Yeah, yeah. And so it made sense to everyone, right? Like it completely right. made sense. Um, very different example, Bob Stern oh, yeah. at Yale, yeah, yeah. Yeah. right? But still, there was this reciprocity. And I would argue that is, is equally true for Deborah Burke mm -hmm. and Yale. Um, and what's been interesting is that in the rollout of this news, uh, I've received tremendous validation of that idea. Right? People, like at first, are like, oh my god, he's leaving New York? I thought he'd right. never leave New York. I thought like he was going to be like ground up into the sidewalk when, <laughs> like, when he was done with, right? Um, and who knows? I could come back here and like end up saying that this is really the place that uh, I spend my golden years. But like, <laughs> um, but you know, to me, it just made so much sense, and the validation was really, yeah, of course, of course. Like everything, this guy's been you know talking about for years is also what this place, Berkeley, has been. And by the way, that's not an accident. I'm an alum. Like this, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. a lot of the writing that's on our website, a lot of the writing that's in my book directly flows from ideas that came from my schooling there. So it's not, it, this is not so uh, right, unusual. Right. Um, and so to me, the baseline premise had to be this, um, this kind of uh, meeting of the minds, yeah, right? Yeah. About who we are and what that place is and what it can be. So there are other aspects to it. So first of all, Something that really turns me on about this place is this true belief in public education. You know, for all of the budget cuts, for the tuition increases, for everything that the UC system has been through, Berkeley is the flagship public institution of this country, mm -hmm. right, in terms right. of higher education. Yeah. Yeah. And it represents something. And to me, you know, what really shifted me from sort of it's like I was when I went there as a student, this kind of happy <laughs> yeah, ambivalence yeah. to this unhappy desire was, uh, <laughs> yeah, was yeah. it's like, oh my God, these people are so brilliant. You know, the, the interview process took several months. There are many, many days of interview. It's a, it's a very horizontal organization, so everything isn't just run by the chancellor and the provost. You meet with all these deans, you meet. Like it's clearly run. There's this idea called shared governance. There, it's very important. So, the, the the running of the place is shared, and you're sharing it with these giants in terms of their intellectual capacity, and students who really like the College of Environmental Design. Even for Berkeley, has the highest number of Pell Grant recipients, first generation college students, has extraordinary diversity metrics. Um, so arguably very different right. than a lot of the other major design schools yeah, in the country, yeah, yeah. which have just because of their tuition been forced into this kind of silver spoon predicament, right? right? And right. a really strong student you know, loan prices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Berkeley has some of that as well because it's nowhere near as cheap as it used to be, uh, what's happened at Cooper Union, but it's yeah. still markedly cheaper than the other schools and has this gestalt about public uh, public education and public mission and so people you know California like at one point at one level it has these extraordinary things going on in terms of technology and entrepreneurialism and, you know you you will not find a plastic bottle when you go mm -hmm. to like it just yeah. you, you know just they don't exist yeah right yeah, yeah. Um, but at another level 
you know, oh my God, what a mess. The fires, the, right. you know, the, like, the water situation, the, the right. population situation, the fact that they can't pass SB 50, which is about building housing around mass transit. I mean, you know, there are extraordinary challenges to take on. Yeah. Um, and that's true up and down, I think, not just Berkeley, but the Pacific Rim. I mean, really, there's, you know, and so... That, from an enlightened self-interest standpoint, when we sat around in this office, in this room, actually, um, with my senior people, and we we're all like, you know, this is what we should be taking on. This yeah, is yeah. Like part of what uh, we want to do. And so we'll have the two offices, and we'll figure out how to communicate with each other. And I, like, I, but I think being more than just a New York practice. Yeah make sense for who we are. Can you talk more about that? I think this idea about reciprocity of being kind of dean practitioner is really interesting. And I think you're exactly right. I think so much of your work, it totally makes sense that you would take this. How does it, how do you see it changing the studio? Like how the studio operates, aside from just being bi-coastal mm, now, will yeah, it change yeah, how you I, think about the work, the great, type of work you take on? Great question. So, you know, um, I did talk to a number of the current practitioner deans who are out there right now, uh, most of whom are my friends, and um, they all echoed the same sentiment, which is um, that being the dean of a major, you know, sort of top five design institution makes you a better architect. Mm. That you're constantly exposed to new ideas, right. you're going to lectures all the time, you're around students who are thinking of all sorts of interesting new things, that that is naturally gonna infuse itself back into the practice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, already I have a long history of hiring students from Columbia, I'm sure I'll end up hiring people from Berkeley as well, so I think that's another way it'll influence it. But I think there's another thing that, I mean, it's more than just the bi-coastal thing. I was just mentioning that job in Latin America. I, I love New York, but I think New York is at a moment where it needs an infusion of ideas from other places mm -hmm. and other cultures. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know if anyone noticed, but there's a major blackout. <laughs> right, right, no, right, right. And one of the, you know, we look at these things and it's like, you know, how can these things be happening? How can we have this right. level of infrastructure failures in a city like New York, right? Why, why is there no composting of any scale yeah. in New York City? Why is the street littered with internal combustion engines? Like, what, you know, what's going on? Yeah. Like, what, you know, how, that status quo which is shifting everywhere around the world. And in all sorts of, you know, yeah, in London and Berkeley and all these places, but also in like, you know, I've seen more advanced environmental policy happen in poor cities in India than I've seen happen in New York City at this point. And so I just think that um, in our commitment to New York, I think part of what will happen here is yeah. a lot of ideas from other places are going to infuse itself into this practice and the work we do here in New York as well as what we do uh, in other places around the world. And that's why I think it's important to not just be uh, sort of 
parochial local practice. I don't, yeah. you know, I don't think yeah. we're going to solve the problems the city has with that. This is a question that I always ask people who are designers, architects, who then are working in academia, who are prolific writers. Do you think that design background, and we, maybe this connects back to the art history, does that affect, do you think that influences in some way how you think about your role as a teacher or even like an administrator or as a writer, that kind of design background, someone who's kind of come up in that system, who's now talking to people outside of it? Does that have an influence, do you think? Well, I wish it had more of an influence. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I think about my design process and my writing process, and they're very similar. Okay. And a lot of, like a lot of the work that's in this office right now, we got, it, it, it started less from me doing like one flashy concept sketch, which is like, I mean, the number of, the number of offices where the principal goes back and does the concept sketch and CDs and like traces over the like the, the yeah, drawings and yeah. it's a joke, right? <laughs> right? Right. Uh, but what I have done on several occasions for the office is like write an essay about what I think the project's about, and you know those couple of pages. What's nice about it is it's a it's a construction, right? And it gives the team both direction and latitude. Mm -hmm. it, it says, okay, we think this is this project's about something. So our thing in our, our village in Mongolia, right, that started with this idea that Mongolian culture has this, uh, as we were told by our clients, this very deep nomadic spirit to it. And so there was this idea that, well, shouldn't we infuse this, this new place with a sense of the nomad, of the urban planner? And that was enough to set an entire design team on a path. Um, I think designers need to do a much better job at communicating. See, you know, like again, you go on our website, like the English couldn't be more plain. Like it's really <laughs> plain spoken. And you know, there's so many architectural websites and you go on it and they're purposefully uh, obfuscating, right? Yeah, like yeah, the graphic design, yeah, the language. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about messaging that, you know, we're in this mysterious club and, right, you know, right, you, right. You're, like it's about the shamanism. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right? I know exactly and, what you're talking about. Um, and again, I think that was a very 90s idea. Mm -hmm. I think it was a very late 20th century idea. Mm -hmm. um, because what's happening, in part because of social media, is communities yeah. are saying, you know what, we want our new buildings, growth in our communities to be accountable to us. Right. 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 And so we need designers, professionals to actually be able to speak to us in terms that, like in real terms of engagement. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, and so that stuff about being obfuscating just so that like you can impress your peers, that's not going to go anywhere with people. People right. are too smart. They're too right. well informed. Um, and so this is why, like, so for instance, we're not doing work in these places where, you know, when we say we don't work in non-democratic environments, it's not to sound holier than thou about our political system. God knows our political system has problems. Um, it's because there's this sense of accountability. Yeah. It's not like some mayor of a city that can unilaterally say, you know, build me an icon, and there's no one else to engage in that. Dialogue, so you just you know make some balsa wood haiku, and the thing gets built the next day. <laughs> right. 
it's just not, I think, what the world demands of designers now. And so I think designers have to engage language in a much more direct way than they have historically. Yeah, I love that. And that, that actually leads in really nicely to my last question, which is, I apologize, it was a big, a big question potentially. I'm curious, uh, what are the, the books or the authors who are kind of doing that type of uh, writing that you're talking about, who have influenced both your practice, maybe you know, people who you're reading or thinking about, headed into, into the new job? Who are the, the writers that have really influenced you? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> I told you, I told you I was saving the big one for a lot. Um, or even just, you know, it doesn't have to be influence your whole career, but recently no, too. No, no, I mean, it's a really big, um, it's a big range. And I find these kinds of influences to be, you know, very, like, indirect. So, um, like, Several years ago, I was rather miserable in the field, and um, I Pow hadn't started, and I read um, The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Oh, and that's sitting next to my bed. I uh, haven't started. Oh, yet. you haven't? Oh gosh, it's an incredible okay. book. Okay. Um, and that there's a, they're constantly threatening to make it into a movie. Um, I think they are. I, I, I keep hearing yeah. that, and I'm a little worried about that. It's the same reason. Like, my favorite novel is 100 Years of Solitude, and it's really interesting that they've never been able to yeah, yeah. make that book into a movie. Yeah. Because it's impossible. Right, right. Like, it's absolutely impossible. Um, Don Tart, that writing, that piece, you know, it's about, obviously, this painting. I won't tell you too much since you haven't read the book. Um, but really fired up my art history passions again mm. and kind of made me think about why I went into all of this in the first place, and it was really um, instrumental in forming POW. Oh, interesting. Um, even though it's really not about architecture yeah. or about any of this stuff. Um, uh, you know, there's so many different things. Uh, Sapiens, uh, oh, yeah. Eric Sanderson's work around Manhattan and his book Terra Nova. Um, but I also, you know, I don't, I try very purposefully to not get direct inspiration from other living architects. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, we have a kind of rule in the office uh, that is, um, I call it the dead architects rule, mm. <laughs> which is I generally don't want to see references from other living architects. Oh, interesting. Right, um, because again, that is this thing of like Xeroxing a kind of zeitgeist um, as opposed to kind of originality. And so I go back a lot to, uh, you know, writings from Team 10, mm, yeah, the Smithsons, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, Kevin Lynch, oh, yeah. uh, you know, things yeah. that, again, fell way out of vogue, yeah. right, and are probably still considered out of vogue by most people in architecture. Um, but, you know, this is so... The main class I teach in the fall is uh, this Theories of City Forum class, which is a class that Kevin Lynch used to teach at MIT and subsequently picked up by a guy named Julian Beiner when I was there. And what I've tried to do is take that initial syllabus and really transform it to deal with issues of climate change, social inequity, and how design interacts with all of those things. And um, the reading, the syllabi, the syllabus is, is enormous yeah, and yeah. very, like, spanning. And so um, I think it's really important for anyone in any design field to get 
influences from way outside yeah. of their field. Um, and that's, that's what cr creates a lot of the problems, actually, yeah. is when people are just sort of navel-gazing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I mean, th this is the question that I used to end all of them. And I was honestly especially excited to ask you this because I had the sense that it wasn't going to be architecture books, that it was going to be kind of outside of the profession and kind of... Uh, yeah, and it can span from ones. anything from fiction to dreams of my father. I mean, yeah. like, you know, yeah. you know, it's... Um, you, you know, I went to this um, fashion conference last fall in the UK, which was the last place in the world I imagined myself. And there are a lot of heavy hitters in the fashion industry there. And when I was invited, I was like, I know nothing about this field. And they said, perfect. Um, and um, it was exactly this idea of like people influencing each other, getting ideas from. And I got such a warm reception there. People were super interested in cities right now. And it was really interesting to say, like, you know, the fashion industry is going through enormous upheaval. They're mm. one of the biggest culprits in oh, the yeah, sustainability yeah. Yeah. Uh, space. Uh, there's been a lot of, you know, labor issues, sexual harassment issues, all this stuff that that industry is confronting right now. And a couple of things that came out of that. One, they wanted to draw from other fields, right? right. Which is why right. they're like trying to pull a bunch of people from outside yeah. of their industry. And, but also for me, I saw this clear reciprocity of people who are now like really well-known fashion designers and stuff who, you know, had these outside influences, went and um, couldn't, they always had some sort of thumb placed on them in traditional practice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and therefore went off and did their own thing mm -hmm. with these external influences and now right. have become enormous success stories. And so that to me is very inspiring. And so yeah. I think you can get inspiration from a lot of places. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I think that's a great way to end this because it kind of brings us back full circle to, to you studying engineering and art history just because you kind of wanted to. Um, this was such a fun conversation. Sure. I could talk to you for another hour <laughs> about this stuff. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Sure. I really enjoyed pleasure. it. Good. This episode was recorded on July 15th, 2019 in New York City. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.